1: Well, this morning I want to begin by asking you to listen to these descriptions of an individual who is in our church strong, unflinching, bold, courageous, unfaltering, unwavering. These are adjectives that would describe someone we would all hope to be, especially in our Christian faith. But who is it that I'm describing? Well, you, at least the potential that you have in Jesus Christ. In terms of what you are made and called to be, these all should describe who you are. And yet we find ourselves at the tail end of a multi-month study in a book where the Apostle Paul is addressing, he is confronting and rebuking the Corinthian church, in which are Christians who are weak. They are caving in. They are flailing and faltering and in the midst of that they are holding fast to what they think is right and even attacking the Apostle Paul in the midst of their acceptance of false doctrine. But we know as we have studied 1 Corinthians and as we have seen the Apostle Paul address these various issues that that is not what God has called his children to be. There's a question for us though. In thinking of all those noble descriptions, how can we be the type of people who stand fast, who stand fast on God's Word in the face of trials, in the face of pressures, in the face of daily difficulties? Because we can all agree that as much as we find joy in it, as much as we persevere, as much as we worship, the reality is that life is difficult. And as we continue in 1 Corinthians and see the call to such composure, we will see what this means for us. And I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We find ourselves in the last chapter of 1 Corinthians and where it is typical for the the Apostle Paul to just have some final greetings, final closing thoughts, plans about his trips are exposed and revealed. But we also find often at the end of his epistles that he cannot just get away with in his own heart closing off a letter without giving some instruction and final warning or commands. And that's exactly what we find in verses 13 and 14. Let me read this for you, and it just comes out rapid fire, staccato almost. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong let all that you do be done in love the passage 2 verses really outlines itself for us there's five commands here and so i want to give you this morning five marks of the steadfast christian five marks of the steadfast christian and before we get into them i want to tell you that in the greek in which the new testament was written these are all five of these are imperatives that's a fancy word of saying they are commands and for the believer they are commands from God. In the grammar in the Greek they are also in a tense that shows that we are to do this all the time. It indicates habitual continuous action. This is to be these are to be rather characteristic of who we are, how we live, how we stand fast. And it's not that we as believers look at other people and gauge whether or not someone is a Christian by these five marks. But they are five characteristics that we are all commanded to pursue and excel in. No matter where you stand in these five, we are to excel still more. Five marks of the steadfast Christian. The first mark is the mark of caution. The mark of caution. He begins verse 13 with the first command that says, Be on the alert. Be on the alert. We know that the backdrop to all of this involves many of the Corinthians being swayed by false doctrine, believing the pressures of the world from all the many false religions that they were surrounded by. Again, this was a culture and a time and a place where everyone was religious. Everyone went to some sort of temple or synagogue or house church. Everyone came from a false religion or a different religion. And with that, as they enter this new religion called Christianity, they hold on to many of these beliefs, and even if they turn from those, they are pressured by the world and by others who are coming into the church or just those that they interact with on a daily basis. This was not like our culture today, where you can meet someone even in your own workplace and never see them again for five or six years because they're in a different department. They would live in the same place. They would all shop in the same place. They would have the same neighbors they had when they grew up, the same neighbors that their parents and possibly even their grandparents would have. It was a small community, and so you would see the same people all the time. And so you could see neighbors or, or the favorite produce merchant saying, Hey, haven't seen you at the worship of Aphrodite lately. Where have you been? Oh, you're one of those Jesus followers. But don't you know that there is no resurrection? for example. And so we see how these pressures come in. And so Paul says, be on the alert. This word in the Greek is translated in other English Bibles as be watchful, be on guard. And it is one word in the Greek, which means stay awake, watch out. And when we say be on the alert, it's, we kind of use those same meanings in English today. Watch out, be on guard, stay awake. Throughout the New Testament, this very word is used to be on the alert in the context, in eschatological, eschatological text or end times text, to be alert, on watch, on guard for the return of Jesus Christ because He's coming at any time. But we also see it used by Peter in regard to the enemy, Satan. In 1 Peter 5.8, he says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's also used by Paul when he speaks in Acts chapter 20 to the elders in Ephesus. He's leaving. And so he gives them these parting words to encourage them and to challenge them and he warns them against worldly influence and influencers that will come into the church. Let me read for you Acts 20:29 20, through 31. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Elsewhere, we are also called to be on the alert against apathy or indifference in Revelation chapter 3. False teachers in 2 Peter 2 and vigilant in prayer Ephesians 6:18 Ultimately in all of these uses it is a call to vigilance against attacks against the faith pressures against what you believe that we face all the time And as Christians this is something we have to take seriously we need to be proactive in being on the alert In other words we are not to just be reactive When temptations come or people come that say things that we don't agree with, we need to be proactive. Right now, this very day, you need to set your mind on how you will continue to be watchful and be on guard and not tuck away this attitude or this responsibility for when you feel like it's time to be on the alert. It does not make sense. For a soldier to just stay in his home and not be on the front lines where he's supposed to be. And when the enemy attacks, to go and unlock his gun case and find his gun and look for his uniform and then drive 20 minutes to the base. He needs to be on the alert at all times, suited up, ready to go. That's why they train them. You've seen this in the movies and in documentaries. At a moment's notice, the drill sergeant yells, wake up! And they don't just rub their eyes, like, give me a minute to stretch this out. They're up and they're ready. They're standing to attention. Be on the alert. And that's the very picture that Paul gives us in using this word. A soldier on guard duty. He cannot doze off even for a minute. He cannot be distracted. He must always be watching for danger. And this was a time where there were no radars to tell them that the enemy is a hundred miles away. There's no warning. There were no peace talks. They just showed up. And if you picture that sentry on guard, in some ways this picture of exhausting, tiring vigilance is actually easier for us. Because the sentry in ancient times was not sure if danger would come. He had to stand on that watchtower even in times of peace and just stay awake looking at the field, seeing if there are any dots of horses or chariots or men. And you know how that is. It's easier to let your guard down when all you see are clear fields with not an enemy in sight. You get bored. You get tired. Nothing's happening here. You see this in stores where they hire guards, security outside. And it's one of the safest areas in the Bay Area. They're bored. They're on their phones. They're looking down. They're not looking at the streets and every car that passes by. They let their guard down. But the reason it's easier for us is because we know the enemy is everywhere. It's everywhere. All around us are those who reject the Lord and thus reject His message and the messengers who bring it. We live in a world that is dark. We live in a world that is in desperate need of Jesus Christ. There is no shortage of the constant barrage of pressures and persecution against what we believe. And it's only going to get worse. Things are confused. And a lot of the confusion is that which the Bible is clear about and the Bible says no. You see, I believe that the greatest threat for those of us in this room is not false teachers that will come in self-proclaimed pastors holding bible verses it is the social and political norms and pressures of the day that make us capitulate waver and compromise we live in a time and a place where we can make no assumptions about what we will see or experience simply because we are handed a wedding invitation Even that needs to be filtered through the grid of Scripture. We cannot even assume what someone was born as based on how they introduced themselves or announced their gender. This is our world today. We need to be on the alert. The news we read, the entertainment we watch, all of those influence us, not so much self-proclaimed pastors holding Bibles, at least those of us in this church. We live in a world where we are not to judge or to hate those who have lifestyles that the Bible says is sinful. We are to have compassion. We are to have love. And you know what one of the greatest acts of love is? If someone has a problem and they clearly need help, that we get them that help. Rather, than being part of our society that refuses to say they need help, but we must all change the entire society to make the sick think they're okay. To be a part of that is grossly unloving. And if you were to come to any culture in the world 50, 100 years ago and say, hey, there are people who, who have great confusion, mental illness, And rather than addressing it, because we want to be sensitive to them, we're going to change our whole culture so that we all have to agree that they're okay and they're the norm. How is that loving? People 50 years ago would say, you're nuts, that would never happen, and yet it's happening. We stand here not to throw rocks, not to hate, but to love and to show compassion, and to teach them the truth of Jesus Christ. When it comes to being on the alert, I want to give you some specifics because say, be on the alert. I don't, how do you do that? Well, firstly, it means not being careless, not being careless. We need to take time to evaluate the things that influence us. There are things that influence you that you are not even aware of. There are things that you think might influence you negatively, but you kind of push that conviction away for the sake of entertainment or relationships or work or whatever it may be. Again, most of these you are probably unaware of, which is why it's all the more important to be proactive. Make a list if you need to. Who do you see? Who do you talk to? What do you watch on TV? What books do you read? What blogs do you follow? What podcasts do you listen to? Who are your favorite authors, your favorite scientists, your favorite psychologists, your favorite pastors? How are they influencing you? Is it towards the Scriptures or away from it? Make a list. Make mental note. What goes into your eyes? What goes into your ears? And take note of how they may be affecting you, especially the things you think are not affecting you. Those tend to be the most dangerous. Those are cancer not gunshots. They creep in unannounced. In addition to not being careless, this means not being indifferent, to not care. If you're not serious about your life and your faith, then someone else is going to be. I'm going to say that again. If you are not serious about your life and faith, someone else is going to be. They're going to mold you conform you to the world as we're warned about in Romans. You, with your spirit-filled heart and your Bible-informed mind and conscience, you have to control what steers you so you don't just float downstream and just enjoy life and not care, carefree, until you one day drown or fall over to the rocks below. You're all looking at me. You're all looking at your Bibles. You're looking at something right now. Did you know that because of its location on your face, you can always see your nose? It's something that's always in view, but your brain cancels it out. You never notice it. Your brain makes it invisible. You're probably trying to notice it now. You know, when something is there all the time, our brain cancels it out. I remember when I was 15 years old going to driver's ed. And they were really, remember this, they're really strict about how many hours or a certain number of classroom hours you had to have. And so we went into this little room. It was right there um, on El Camino in Redwood City. They rented this little room. And they had one of those big clocks, those timestamp clocks, like you see at different stores or factories, right? And so we had to clock in and clock out to make sure we got the right amount of hours. You ever use one of those? It's loud. And every minute when the clock moves, it's very loud. And it was a tiny room. And we're like, what is that that thing? And I remember the instructor saying don't worry about that. It's very annoying now, but within the next hour or so, you're not going to hear it anymore. And sure enough, that's what happened. We need to be careful because this is true of pressures and influence from the world. It becomes so commonplace that we don't even notice it anymore. It becomes so normal. We hear it all the time. We see it constantly. And pretty soon, it's easy to just cancel it out. We need to be on the alert. Know that it's there. Know what the Scriptures say about it. And make sure it doesn't influence you. Mark number two of the steadfast Christian, the mark of conviction. He goes on and says, stand firm in the faith. You're familiar with that word conviction? It's a firm or fixed belief. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you know what you believe. Now stand there. Stand upon the solid rock. Stand up. Stand firm in the gospel. And that's what Paul's talking about when he uses the word faith in this context. It's not saving faith, but the object of faith, which is the gospel. Stand firm in the gospel. The truths of the gospel and everything that flows from that, which is the entirety of the scriptures and specifically the New Testament. Back in chapter 15, we were told what the gospel is. Would you turn there with me a page back or just for some of you glance over on the other side of your Bibles? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 4. If you weren't here for that, I'll remind you that if you have five seconds to share the gospel with someone, just memorize these two verses and repeat them and they've heard the gospel. 1 Corinthians 153 3-4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel. This is what we are to stand firm in. Stand firm in the faith. Now go back to verse 1 of chapter 15. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, here it is, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. There it is. Stand firm in the gospel. Hold fast to these truths. And then, of course, he goes into verses 3 and 4 and tells us what those truths are. We were warned in this passage against straying from these truths. We were instructed to avoid any wavering, any doubt, any uncertainty. I want you to turn forward a little bit to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 we'll go look at verse 14. Ephesians 4:14 4, and again it brings up of course this principle of standing firm in the faith, but it gives us reason to do that, it gives us a basis for that based on what the Lord has done. So Ephesians 4.14, I'm just going to summarize the verses that come before it. He basically says, because God has assigned various men and established the church to teach the truth, to bring all believers to a fullness in Christ, verse 14, as a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. In other words, we're not supposed to be like a, a little sailboat that has no business venturing any more than a few nautical miles away from shore, finds itself in the middle of the ocean and its little sails, nothing can control it, except for the wind and the waves. Wherever it goes, that's where that goes. And that's what Paul is setting up here as a picture. He says, you shouldn't be like this, like children in the faith. This person says this, oh, that sounds right. But this person said this, that sounds right. And whatever is the last thing you read or heard, you believe it. Because they use the Bible or they speak in a booming voice or they wear a suit or they wear designer jeans and a polo shirt or whatever it is that attracts us. We need to be careful. And notice in Ephesians 4.14 that these aren't just some mundane, just happen to be spoken, just passing by type of statements. There is trickery. There's well-crafted schemes aimed at deceiving us. We are not swayed by statements. But we may be swayed by political speeches. We may be swayed by thousands of people protesting and holding up signs and stopping the freeways. You see, there's planning. It's well-crafted. We need to be careful. We need to stand firm in the faith. We must have convictions. And the best way to avoid being deceived is by knowing the truth. Is this the read your Bible sermon? This part is. Read your Bible. You can't stand firm in the faith if you don't know what the faith entails. Read your Bibles and prioritize your faith, but also meditate on it. Understand what it means. Apply it to your lives. We must hold fast to the truth at all costs. And standing firm may mean risking your job, risking your finances, risking your comfort, risking your life, if it means you hold fast to God's truth. Most of those things we're so blessed will not happen to us here, especially in the U.S. and California. But do you hold fast in such a way that you are willing? You are willing to do whatever it takes because it's that important to you. Whatever it takes, I was talking to our upcoming retreat speaker this week, and he was sharing something that was heavy on his heart that influenced what he wants to bring to us in Monterey in a couple weeks, and is the willingness to stand firm and suffer for the sake of the cross. And he told me of a particular individual in his church that he was thinking of that is now going to lose their job because they didn't want to give in to the pressures of work regarding LGBT. And it scares me. It grieves me how many Christians wouldn't think twice about attending something and jumping in line with something that counters their faith. For what? The excuses start pouring in. Well, my job, you know. Well, my finances, you know. Well, my comfort, you know. Some of us hold so strongly to a particular biblical point of view that we ignore everything else and everything is just about that one issue. You're not standing firm and you're not on the alert because you're letting go everywhere else. But hey, this one issue, that's a big deal. And so, Christian, I want to ask you what's your price? What's your price? What will it take to get you to waver in your beliefs? Maybe not in your heart, but externally, what people see, what people think about you? Is it money? Is it job security? Is it success? Is it the safety of your children? Is it to pursue a social or political agenda? What will it take to get you to budge from the gospel? And if the answer is anything besides absolutely nothing, then you have a problem. And it is the biggest problem you have. The gospel is like a tree. And like the branches of a tree emanating from the tree trunk, every word of the scriptures is connected to that trunk. You can prune the tree, you can cut off a few branches, it still looks fine, the tree still lives. You can capitulate on some of your beliefs that are not the gospel, and the gospel is still the gospel. You can still say you're a gospel believing Christian. You can have errant views here and there, and the gospel still stands, but keep chopping. Keep chopping those branches off. And that tree, though the trunk is still intact, doesn't look like a tree anymore. In fact, no one would look by and say, hey, nice tree. They'd say, what's up up with the tree stump? What's going on with the dead tree? Why do you have a tree trunk just sitting in your yard? We need to stop stand firm. We need to stop thinking that a little cut here, a little chop there, a little break there. Ah, we're fine, we're fine. I still believe the gospel. You're not fine. You're not standing firm. In his book, Evangelicalism Divided, Ian Murray wrote this. If we sacrifice truth today for short-term influence... We cannot guarantee what our conduct will be tomorrow. When the day to fight is postponed, the very will to fight may go from us. You know what I read here? What I hear him saying is that small compromises with the world over time make us the world. Stand firm in the faith. Mark number three of the steadfast Christian, the mark of courage, the mark of courage. He goes on to say, act like men. This is one of those verses that we like to take those three words and just apply it however we want based on what we think a man should act like. But it's actually, again, one word in the original Greek, act like men, It literally is play the man or show yourself to be a man. And it actually has the idea of maturity and courage. Mature courage. In fact, the meaning would apply to both men and women to be courageous in the faith. This call to act like men comes in the wake of rebuking them as infants back in chapter 3, verse 1. The admonition in 1420 to not be children in their thinking but to be mature, though children in evil. The call to courage goes hand in hand with stand firm in the faith. In order to stand firm, we must be brave in the face of error and immorality. This is going to be all the more true as time goes on, as tolerance for Christianity wanes while persecution grows. This is about not giving in to the enemy, but bravely facing the foe. It is the opposite of cowardice. It is bravery and unflinching courage, especially in the face of error, especially in the face of false doctrine and immorality. Now here's the good news. The good news is is that the one for whom we are to have courage is the same one who gives us that courage. In other words, this kind of courage comes from the Lord. And this goes back to standing firm in the faith. We must trust the Lord in all things because this courage is for and from God. If He is not supreme in your heart, then you won't want to stand up in the face of difficulty because it's easier just to give in. Why be uncomfortable? Why make difficulties with friends and coworkers? I'm not calling you to be obnoxious. I'm not calling you to not do what your employer is paying you to do. But we need to be courageous. If he and his glory are not your ultimate focus in life, then why would you stand up for the gospel in times of difficulty? Why would you say something when it's a meeting of 20 people and you can just sit there and be quiet and go back to your cubicle and hide your Bible? You see, going with the flow is easier, it's safe, it's more comfortable. Standing up for God is harder. It's dangerous and uncomfortable, but it is more rewarding. There is a God-centered joy that we can only experience through honoring the Lord. There is joy in obedience. And it is rewarding because there is reward for eternity compared to a few decades here in this life. It is rewarding because you are serving a holy and unchanging God rather than a fluid society or your sinful self. When it comes to the practical application of courage in this sense, understanding the fear of man is so important. The fear of man is not defined merely by a true fear, a terror of individuals, It means seeking the affirmation of others, trying to impress other people, caring too much about what other people think of you. And understand this is a sin issue. You can excel in your job. You can do well in school and not fear man. This is not a call to say, well... I don't want to fear man, so I'm not going to study because, you know, grades are just trying to impress other people. Please don't do that. It's a hard issue. You see, pursuits that are normal and noble in our culture are often driven by the fear of man. Status, reputation, success. I mean, even the idea of success is defined by people. Success means better than other people, more than other people, smarter than other people. It's gauged by other people. But if you focus on those things, it will be to the detriment of your relationship with the Lord. The most powerful passage on the fear of man is in Matthew 10. If you turn towards the beginning of your New Testament, I invite you to join me in Matthew chapter 10. We're going to read a long section there. Matthew chapter 10 verses 28 through 39 and it speaks of the fear of man. And although Jesus Christ in speaking is using extremes in our understanding, they are a reality for the people that were in his immediate audience, which were the disciples that he was sending out to preach the gospel. But the the principle still applies. And as we get through this because it's going to say like look, people can kill you, don't be scared of that. Hang on, because he explains why this is so. Matthew ten twenty eight through 39. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Stop there. He's not saying he's going to do that to you. He is emphasizing the power of God. And again, martyrdom, persecution to the point of death was very real back then for them. But then he goes on and explains the greatness and the concern of God in our lives that battles defeats the fear of man. Verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a cent? This would be the cheapest meat you could buy back then. So if you were absolutely poor so that you couldn't buy uh, good meat, you couldn't subsist on vegetables, you could at least buy two sparrows for a cent. So he's saying, even the most the 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 item that is considered the least valuable in society, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Think about rats. Right? Would you eat rats? You would if you were starving and you could catch them. And he's saying, rats. Even a rat will not nibble on a seed or put his paw on something painful without your heavenly Father knowing. And he goes on, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. It's not that God is just sitting there doing that all the time. The point is he knows everything. And if he knows everything, he knows the pressures and the persecution that you are enduring right now. Verse 31, so do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Verse 37, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What he's talking about here is faith. He's talking about being a Christian may create division in whatever relationship you have with someone who is not a Christian. And God knows that. He's saying that this is going to happen. Not on our part. We are to seek reconciliation and love. But the reality is, and some of you have experienced this, we have family members that will say, I can't believe you believe that anymore. You are no longer welcome in my home. Get out with that nonsense. That's what it's talking about here. And that's just the reality of having faith in Jesus Christ. All the more for these back then. Then, verse 38, And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. We are familiar with this passage. We understand the commitment that Christianity involves, and we understand that relationships May be broken because of this. People may not want to talk to us because of this. Go to the park after this today. Go get an iced coffee. Wait till it's nice and wet and sweaty on the outside. And go to a stranger and say, Excuse me, can you hold this while I tie my shoe? Tie your shoe. Pick up your phone, check your email. They'll patiently wait there and then get your phone back or get your coffee back. Go back to them and say, Excuse me, have you heard of the Lord Jesus Christ? Yeah. That's the world. That's okay. So long as you don't fear man because of it. We must have courage. We must have courage. The beauty of this is that courage is not in a politician that half the country hates. It's not even a political party that divides 50 50 our country. It's not a star player on the opposing team. It is the creator of the individual you're tempted to be afraid of. There's no cause to be afraid. Mark number four, the mark of control. Be strong, be strong. Closely related to maturity and courage, it makes sense that Paul now calls the Corinthians to be strong. After everything that we've seen in this epistle, it is natural to to be concerned about the stability of the Corinthians' faith. They have exhibited a weakness that now needs to be girded with strength to steel their nerves Whereas weakness would result in an easy defeat, strength results in a faith that is victorious and invincible. Remember the Greek grammar. This isn't a call to be strong because you are currently weak. In Christ, your faith has a strength that is superhuman. Practically, then, we are to exhibit that strength in our daily lives and in everyday situations. Whereas the world wants to shame us for what we stand for, there is defeat and shame for us when we give in, when we compromise, when we keep quiet. This kind of strength will cling to the victory that has already been promised and accomplished in and through Jesus Christ. King David clues us into the secret to such success. In Psalm 31, 24, he says, Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Who? All you who hope in the Lord. That's where strength comes from. That's where self-control comes from. The hope in the Lord. Just as with everything we've seen thus far this morning, being strong is an application of what we have in Christ that needs to be worked on. It's like physical strength. It doesn't come by sitting in your lounge chair and eating chips. It comes through effort. And so does spiritual strength. It must be cultivated through not only the study of God's Word, but believing it, understanding it, studying it, letting it apply to your lives. In the beginning of Colossians, Paul tells his friends what his desire is for them. I'll read it for you. Colossians 1:10 through 12 says, "so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints." In light. That's Colossians 1.10-12. But how are they to gain all of those things? In verse 9, he says, I have not ceased to pray for you and to, the, to ask that you be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that... In other words, Paul says, I want you to have all those things. Courage, strength, spiritual growth, Hope in the Lord. And the way I'm helping you with that is by praying that you will know the Bible. It all starts with the Word of God. And being strong is a mark of control because it is the control of our hearts. It is the control of our minds and the actions that flow from them that is rooted in that strength found in Christ alone. It takes power. It takes effort to live in the disciplined life of one who is taking up the cross of Christ. It is hard. It is hard. We have God and so in many ways it's easier. We can pray. We can trust in Him. We can know that He is sovereign even over our most difficult days. The most sad of our sadnesses. And of course over our happiness and joy as well. He is sovereign. But more and more, we understand the passages and where He warned us like we just saw in Matthew 10. He who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise from Scripture. That's in the Bible. Heaven is promised. The cross is promised. And persecution is promised. I'll tell you right now, if someone said, hey, when you're a believer, hey, I, I, have a, I have something to tell you from the Bible, and if you accept Jesus Christ, your life's going to be really easy after this. You need to go find them and tell them you li- they lied to you. Yes, it's easier. The burden, he helps take the burden. But in a practical sense, especially in this society and culture, it is difficult. You stand out. You stand out. But you know what the great thing about that in standing out is? Don't you want light to stand out? In the darkness, don't you see the one beacon of light? In a flavorless meal, aren't you attracted to the one with salt? The one dish with salt? Don't just look at the world and say, Woe is me. It's so hard. Just waiting for the Lord to return. Gonna lock myself in the closet and... Just watch Fox News and listen to John MacArthur and wait for the Lord to return. That's not Christianity. You're already dead. We need to be strong. We need to go out. We need to have control. And we need to look at the world and say, hey, the world is dark. The world is hard. But you know what? That just means I can shine even brighter. The fact that you stand out means exactly that. That you stand out as a beacon of hope for the lost. let's move on. We're looking at five marks of the steadfast Christian. We've seen the mark of caution, the mark of conviction, the mark of courage, the mark of control, and finally the mark of compassion. Look at verse 14. So fitting that he ends with this, let all that you do be done in love. The two most important concluding and summarizing words in this verse are the word all and the word love. It's not enough to do some things with love, and it's not sufficient to love some and not others. Everything in the believer's life must be rooted, bound, and motivated by love. We've seen several times from chapter 13 that no matter the results, regardless the benefit to others and even society, without love it profits us nothing in the eyes of God. In fact, Paul says it's worthless, it's obnoxious, you might as well just be banging a clanging cymbal in someone's ear. By the way, this is love of God and love of others, not love of self. This reality in and of itself goes against the grain of our results driven, the ends justify the means culture. Not with God, though. He looks at the heart. He looks at the heart. And if the heart is devoid of love, then it is all for naught. Doesn't matter if you give away millions of dollars. It doesn't matter if you shelter thousands of homeless. Without love, in God's eyes, it is useless. And this love is agape love. The great love with which God loves us. The two defining characteristics being that agape love is unconditional and it is volitional. Unconditional means just that, no conditions. It doesn't matter if the person loves you back. It doesn't matter if the world deems the person unlovable. It doesn't matter if you deem the person unlovable. It doesn't even matter if the person doesn't want your love. An example I always like to give is what's the most loving thing we as a Christian can do to a non-Christian is share the gospel. and They often don't want that. But we love unconditionally. Even if they spit in our face, throw their drink on us, want to walk away, we love them Unconditionally. It's also volitional, which means it's a choice. It is not an emotion, as Hollywood wants us to believe. It is not something you fall into or fall out of, for that matter. Yes, loving some will take more effort than loving others, but it is a choice. And what you are to choose is to put in the hard work in loving. And concerning the Corinthians, this fundamental aspect of life was what was missing. Paul confronts a lot of false doctrine, but ultimately it is a lack of love, which is why in chapter 13 he waxes so eloquently about the importance of love. Because just go back through all of the chapters that we've seen in 1 Corinthians, if they were to have love, then there wouldn't have been the infighting in the name of their leaders in chapters 1 and 3, 1 through 3 rather. If they loved, they wouldn't have the animosity toward Paul that we saw in chapter 4 or the lawsuits against each other in chapter 6. With love, they wouldn't have the marital challenges of chapter 7 or the abusing of the weak with their liberty and gray areas in chapters 8 through 10. If they had love, they wouldn't abuse the Lord's Supper, the rich eating together and not leaving anything for the poor. With love, they wouldn't fail to edify the church as we saw in chapters 12-14. And if you consider all of these aspects of church and Christian life that the Corinthians failed to do because of their lack of love, you can easily translate that into our lives and the ramifications in our lives when we do not love biblically. And you put this in line with what we've done thus far. And you recognize that with caution, conviction, courage, and control, love and compassion grows with practice. It can't grow if you think it's just an emotion that you don't control. But we know otherwise from Scripture. And you also see that it's not just our behavior toward others, but the absence of love leads to a tolerance of sin. We've seen this in 1 Corinthians. You've seen this in your life. You've seen this in our church. Not just committing sin, but tolerating it. Tolerating sin in our lives, in our church, in society. Because we don't love biblically. We may say that we love, as they define it. If you loved me, you would be okay with such and such. Say, okay, well then, I'll love you and be okay with that. But that's not biblical love. You ever? Uh, we're closing up here, so I feel comfortable sharing this because I know you guys are getting hungry. You ever made meatballs? Make meatballs, take various meats, and you mush it into a ball. You know, without a binder, like eggs or breadcrumbs, the meat will not hold together, and when it's done cooking, it's just going to be ground beef. You're going to have a soup or a sauce that's just filled with particles of meat. The binder holds it into its shape. It is essential to hold together as a sphere. And it's not enough to pack that meat into little balls and then sprinkle some breadcrumbs on top and then throw it into your sauce or into your oven. It's still going to fall apart. The binder has to be mixed in the bowl thoroughly so it's permeated throughout the whole. And in the same way, when Paul says, All that you do must be done in love, he is saying that the binding element that holds all of this together is love. It cannot just be sprinkled here and there. It must be mixed into every aspect, every decision, every thought, every action of your life. Because without a binder, a meatball will never be a meatball. And without love, Christianity will never be, well, Christianity. It must permeate through everything you do. Five marks of the steadfast Christian. Caution, conviction, courage, control, and compassion. How do you want to live? Who do you want to be? Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege of pursuing excellence and holiness for your glory. Thank you that you have given us the power and the hope and the ability to do this by your Spirit, by the cross and the resurrection and the promise of our resurrection. Lord, as we can so easily be pressured and conformed to this world, May we rather be transformed by your spirit, by your word. Help us to gauge where we are losing the battle, where we are even not caring about the battle. May we excel still more. Thank you for these short but clear reminders of who we are to be. May we have this kind of life. May we have this kind of pursuit of excellence and love for you that we might be steadfast Christians that we'd be on the alert, that we'd stand firm in the faith, that we'd be courageous, that we'd be strong, and most importantly, do all things in love. Teach us what that means in each and every one of our lives and situations for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen.